certainly do remember this Memorial Day weekend, those who have paid that price. And if among us this morning, there are those who have had a, a friend, a family member, among those who have laid down their life in the service of our nation, we certainly weep with those who, who weep. We continue our study in 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, throughout this book, the theme of which is strength and weakness, Paul has been defending the authenticity of his, his ministry among those at Corinth, and, and more urgently, his message that the gospel of grace that he had taught there from the time he founded that church, Acts 18, uh, probably about the summer of A.D. 51, uh, there has been opposition. The gospel of grace was opposed in Corinth initially by those who were the, the Jews in the synagogue there of Corinth. Paul's earlier ministry on his first missionary journey, a couple, three years earlier, had been opposed in uh, the province of Galatia over on Asia Minor on the other side of the Aegean Sea by those who taught that, okay, okay, Jesus matters, but the way to be right with God is by keeping the rules. The gospel has always had its fiercest opposition from those who would teach that the way to be right with God is by rule book conformity. Even those who, who don't perceive themselves to be functioning in a specifically sort of faith-driven framework, even those who would not consider themselves to be religious, it's out there that the key to being ultimately successful, the key to ultimately achieving a life worth living, has to do with some version of rule-keeping, discipline, conformity, good habits, good patterns, good behaviors, that that's where the payoff is. There's certainly nothing wrong with living a, a disciplined and orderly life. There's certainly nothing wrong with having sort of a, a code to which you, you aspire. But here's what you and I both know about such systems, such codes, such rule books. You've never pulled it off, and I haven't either. You've never perfectly lived up to whatever internal standards you may have internalized, and you know it, and if you say you have, you'll lie about other things as well. It can't be done. The greatest set of rules ever written for successful living, the greatest guidelines for life ever composed, were composed by the living God himself in the law of Moses. And even that has no power to save. <coughs> and in a context where this very argument was being had, shall we speak of salvation in terms of by grace through faith as Lord Jesus described it, or shall we have a salvation based on keeping the law? The Jerusalem Council in AD 50 covered in Acts chapter 15, the meeting where the leaders, the then leaders of the church, including the apostles, gathered to have this very conversation 
one of the older and more respectful members of the apostles, no lesser than Simon Peter himself said, y'all can argue all day long that keeping the law is the means to know God, but you must remember no one's ever done it. While you have your little argument, it's never been done. It's a moot point. The law cannot save, the law will not save. And yet those detractors who had come behind Paul at Corinth were once again seeking to make that very point that Paul's message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone was way too decoupled from the need to live a life of obedience and compliance and conformity to the external standards. After all, that's what it is to live for God conformity to the external standard. Paul is wrong. That was their message. What they're promoting is what Paul in the paragraph before us this morning calls the ministry of death. The ministry of death. The uh, paragraph before us actually begins in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 7, but I want to go back to the last sentence of verse 6 and read now 2 Corinthians 3, verses uh, last of 6 through verse 18. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, this is Paul's name for the um, striving to be right with God by conforming to the law, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The heart of this paragraph, the Apostle Paul is drawing a contrast between the Old Covenant, that 
that law of Moses contract struck by God between the living God and the people of God in the law of Moses brought down from Sinai and the ministry of the Spirit. Whereas uh, Brother Chad said last week, Jeremiah 31, the law of God now, what it is to know God has been written on our hearts. It's an external conformity versus an internal transformation. It's a rule book versus a relationship. Let's look at some of these points of contrast. And, and to, to sort of make it clearer, I've, I've put it in the printed notes, the written notes there, as a table. We'll track through looking at, at each of the, of the lines and uh, going across. So the first, the title of the two columns, so to speak, are the ministry of death and the ministry of the spirit. And that's the, con the, the contrast Paul hits over and over again through these paragraphs. The first point of distinction is rigidity. Rigidity. The, spirit, the, 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 the ministry of death, the, the law is, well, verse seven says, carved in letters on stone. Now that's inflexible. That's rigid. You, you, you learn it and you obey it. And it is, a, it is a rule book mentality. Probably the, the most complex rule book I've ever had to deal with. And I sort of thought back. And it goes back a long, long way for me into untold ages past when as I approached the age of 15 in 19-something or other, in order to get my learner's permit here in the great state of Florida, there was a thick driver's manual I was expected to become familiar with. And it had, it had rules for everything. The shapes of different signs and, and what they mean. The conditions under which you had to turn on your headlights. What solid yellow lines down the middle mean as opposed to dash lines. Apparently that has changed in the intervening years. I, I need to look that one up because I think I might have it wrong based on what I observe. <laughs> and at the end of pouring over that book and memorizing a bunch of material, you face a test. In that test, you either get your learner's permit or you don't. The Koran describes being in right relationship with the fictional God, Allah, overwhelmingly in terms of do's and don'ts, rules, imperatives and prohibitions. You absolutely should do this, you absolutely should not do that. Islam is a rules-driven religion. Christianity isn't. Sometime when you want to do a little hard work Bible study that I believe will pay off for you. I was encouraged to do this in my second year of seminary and it absolutely changed my relationship with the New Testament. It helped me unwire and rewire some things about my relationship with Christ in some really important ways. I want to encourage this. For those of you who are prone to think of, of your relationship with Christ in terms of, of, of orders and, and prohibition, 
you gotta do this and you must not do this. And your, your tendency is to drift into rule book mentality. I wanna encourage you. Grab two different colors of highlighter and a Bible you don't mind really inking up. And take the New Testament and in one color, Mark, every time there is a commandment, this is what you should do as a Christian. There are plenty in there, and you'll mark them up. But then take a different color and mark what are the descriptions of a Christian. Because you are in Christ, you are this. You will this. Not you shall, but you will. Description versus commandment. You know what you're gonna find out? That's not even close. There's far more verbiage in the New Testament that tells us who we are than that tells us what to do. Way more. Christianity is not best seen in terms of rigid compliance with an externally imposed standard. Rather, if you'll see the other column in the table, it is relationship. It is freedom. It is following Jesus. Now, this can't be some fictional Jesus that you make up as you go. The Word of God is the vocabulary of the Spirit of God in the heart of the child of God. But overwhelmingly, we believers do what we do because of whose we are, not because we are having some external rule book pressed in upon us, but because we know God and are being transformed in an ongoing way by that relationship. Galatians 3.21 says it like this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law could bring us into right relationship with God, then there'd have been no need for the sacrifice of the Son. Sacrifice of the Son is and was necessary because law has no life-giving power. But, next row down on your table, there is glory in the law. The reference to, to Moses being masked that's all through these paragraphs is a reference to Exodus 34 when Moses came down from the mountain of God having received the law, because he had been in the presence of God, he actually glowed and actually had to put a veil over his face in order for the sight of him to be tolerable to God's people. There is glory in the law. In fact, if you remember that the, the, the hard idea of the idea of glory is God's revealing himself as he is. The law takes great strides in revealing God as he is. You want to know how God feels on a variety of matters? Look to his law. Do you want to know how God feels about the difference between, for example, taking a life in self-defense versus taking a life for vengeance? Look to the law. You want to look how God feels about what it is to, to, to steal something that isn't yours by, by violence or by fraud. Look to the law. You want to know how God feels about a private property and the lines around it. Look to the law. These things reveal the heart of God in a way that reveals his glory. But 
the gospel of Jesus Christ gives a much greater glory. In the gospel, we meet God who not only dictates standards, but comes himself to substitute for us as a sacrifice when we cannot fulfill those standards. Thus, back in Galatians 3, the law becomes our tutor, our guardian, our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And we learn in the New Testament of a God who loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he did that while we were still sinners. The greater glory. It's described in uh, verse 10 that the glory uh, of the law, what once had glory, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. The greater glory of the gospel. It's not that the law is any less glorious. Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it every bit. But this picture of surpassing glory, a good, a good word picture that would explain what he's trying to say or what he is saying. If you take a really, a really good flashlight, if you have a really good flashlight and you take it into your, your closet at home and close the closet door and use your really good flashlight, you will find that your really good flashlight does a really good job. You can see and find things in your closet with your really bright flashlight. Now take that same really bright flashlight with those same good batteries and take it outside at noon to the middle of a parking lot on a clear day and shine it around. Is it any less bright? No, it's doing what it does. Is its light far less relevant? Yup. That's the, that's the comparison he's making. It's not that the law has somehow failed, it's just that it's been surpassed. The law was the flashlight, Christ is the glory of the noonday sun, greater glory, and then condemnation. The law he calls the ministry of condemnation in verse eight. Here's, here's what happens under the law. If you're here this morning and you truly believe that you have become and are being kept right with God because you're just so terribly obedient and that your obedience is the make or break in whether you're right with God, here is, here is your problem and you and I both know it. Your obedience isn't perfect and God is. And so as you strive to obey and strive to obey and strive to obey and fail. Now God is disappointed in you. Now you have failed him. You're ashamed and he's disappointed and it's hard to come home. So your, your prayers become less frequent. There's an alienation. There's a barrier. And that shame and that guilt just distances you further from God, which, by the way, sets you up for greater failure. But you know what you do? You resolve. You turn over one more leaf in that forest of new leaves you're working your way through. 
I'm going to get it right this time. I really am. I'm going to do more, and I'm going to try harder, and this time I'm going to get it right, and then one more time you don't. And I'm not picking on you, by the way. I'm, I'm sharing the experience of everyone who ever tried to be right with God by keeping rules. And now you're further alienated from God, and it's even colder. There's a, there's a trend right now among some in the Christian, so-called Christian popular culture that's uh, called deconstructing, deconstructing your faith. Prominent speakers, prominent authors in some cases have stepped away from the faith and they are deconstructing their Christianity. They're adjudicating that it's not real where their Christianity never was. Their Christianity was based on rule keeping and conformity and they spiraled away from God in a cycle of unsuccessful rule keeping which got more and more burdensome and less and less successful and finally, I don't blame them, they chucked the whole thing. Good, may they come to faith in Christ because rather than the ministry of condemnation, the new covenant opens up a ministry of righteousness, also in verse nine. A ministry of righteousness. If I believe that I'm right with God, not because of me, but because of him, I'm grateful to him. I love him. If I know who I am remotely and know who he is and know what he has done for me, I love him. I want to serve him. I get it wrong. But because the entire thing is based not in my character, but in his. I don't want to get it wrong. I'm not flippant about getting it wrong. I don't trample about on his grace. But when I get it wrong, I know where to go. I know what to do. I know he loves me. I know he accepts me. I know he forgives me. And when I come to him one more time and say, Lord, my mouth did it to me again. My bent brain did it to me again. My corrupt heart did it to me again. My rebellious will did it to me again. Yeah, Russell, I know. I know. You need to know that one also was on the cross. Let's hang out. And I love him more. And I appreciate him more. And rather than seeking distance, I all the more seek intimacy. And slowly, gradually, imperfectly, I'm getting better. And one day, I'm gonna be like Jesus. I'm gonna have to lose a couple hundred pounds of this. But one day, I'm gonna know Jesus. Face to face. And I'm gonna be like him. It's a ministry of righteousness, and you can't get there by keeping the rules. 
That's why this, the, the law's role was transient. Over and over again in these paragraphs, he's talked about when, it, when, when that was being brought to an end, was brought to an end, that was being brought to an end, he says it over and over again. So, Roman 2, the new covenant and the consequences of the new covenant. When we have come to Christ, when we have turned from our sin and trusted Jesus by faith, not seeking to be right with God by keeping the rules, but trusting in what Christ has done. His performance, not ours. His righteousness, not ours. Accepting his gift, not our achievements as the means to being right with God. What do we get? We get hopelessness. Verse 12, hopefulness, pardon me, verse, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, a hope, now, in our popular use of the term, hope can be a very uncertain thing. Hope can be, well, I hope, I hope the Heat can recapture in game seven what they had in games one, two, and three, if you're following the Eastern Conference Finals. I, I, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon if I've got plans outdoors. But that's not how the New Testament uses hope. Hope in the New Testament is an anchored confidence in a future reality not yet realized. My confidence is anchored. My reality is not yet realized. See, if, if I'm going to be right with God by keeping the rules, I'm in suspense on how the scoreboard's going to come out. Witness to people who are deeply religious but in a rule-keeping system and ask them if they know they're going to go to heaven. And they'll tell you, well, I hope so. Because for them, there's a, there's a scoreboard out there that they can't see. And they have, to, they have to wish they're doing okay. For a biblical Christian, we can know. We know because we believe Jesus is not a liar. And he said, my sheep follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. We have hope. Second, because of that, we have boldness. It's still in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now this boldness here specifically speaks to boldness in speech. Paul said, when I was with you, I told you the truth. I'm telling you the truth now. I've got the best news there is. Why would I alter it? Why would I fiddle with it? Why would I change it? Not from works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. I'm bold. I hope you are. Child of God, your life can transmit many different messages. May it transmit the message of the gospel of grace. May that be what we are about. Not merely in this room, but out there where your lives are being lived. Hopefulness, boldness. Let her see freedom. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 17. A consequence of this new covenant is freedom. Freedom. Now, if we're going to celebrate our freedom, we've, we sang about our freedom in the very first song of this worship service. We better define it right. 
Be careful of the world's definition of freedom. The world's definition of freedom is permission to do whatever my impulses are telling me in the moment. If I am, am permitted to follow my own impulses in the moment, that is freedom. Friend, that is not freedom, that is slavery to your impulses. You and I both know that if you follow your impulses every moment, that'll lead you into noteworthy problems a lot of the time. That ain't freedom, it's slavery to impulse. No, freedom is not permission to do whatever my impulse say is, says in the moment. Freedom is the capacity to do what I ought to do. The rails for a high-powered uh, diesel locomotive do not restrict its freedom, though they keep it from turning every which way. They don't restrict its freedom, they provide it. Because on those rails, that, that locomotive can rock and roll the way it was designed to. Freedom, this is the capacity to do what I ought to do and praise God, I have been freed already from the penalty of my sin. Praise God, as I follow Jesus, I am being slowly but surely freed from the power of my sin. One day, praise God, I will be freed from the presence of my sin. Oh, happy day at the dawn of my glorious, glorious eternity living with Jesus. Freedom. Finally, real, authentic transformation. It's interesting, we also sang earlier in the service about, about fighting a battle that Jesus has already won. Transformation illustrates that because on the one hand, we are commanded to be transformed. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We are to be undergoing, we're commanded to participate in this process of transformation. That's a battle we're in, but it's a battle Jesus has already won. That was the last point, that was the last point. Verse 18, it's happening for every believer, and we all are being transformed, says verse 18. It's happening. Child of God, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. That's not a commandment. The Bible doesn't say if anyone is in Christ, he really ought to go out there and be a new creature. It's not a commandment. It's a reality. If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. You're fighting a battle in transformation that he has already won. You're in it. Transformation involves and engages your obedience. But it's happening. And it's not happening because of you. You are, you are paddling, but you are paddling with a strong current. Glory to God of the transformation he has achieved. You know what? Like our deconstructing friends, if you're here this morning and you are being exceedingly religious and you're working very, very hard to please a God whom you in fact don't know, I suspect one day you'll chunk it. I suspect one day you'll say, enough is enough. This can't be done and I'm having no more of it. And you won't be factually wrong, but you'll be horribly mistaken. Because you're not gonna get there by following external rules mashed upon you. What you need to do is turn from your sin. Trust him by faith, by faith alone. Ask him to come in and change you. And he will. 
And if you've not done that, nothing is more urgent for you this Memorial Day weekend. And if you have done that, and sometimes the rules get heavy, fall more in love with Jesus. Check those rules and see if they are direction from God's word or if it's somebody else getting their jollies by trying to press external conformity on you. And follow Jesus as he is with everything you've got.